The following program is brought to you by Caltech. Okay, well, thanks very much. So we're um, nearing the, uh, the end of our uh, short course, and I'm very pleased to introduce uh, Sterl Finney, here, a uh, professor here at Caltech, who has been involved in a number of uh, NASA missions and is a uh, theoretical high-energy physicist. And uh, we will be leading our panel on exploration concepts for small satellites uh, in astrophysics. Okay, uh, so I got asked to run this, I guess, because I've been involved, um, I'm slightly involved in LIMSAT, as I think Sri mentioned, but other than that, my NASA experience and satellite experience has been in much larger missions. I spent 13 years on LISA, the Laser Interferometer Space Antenna, getting it through two decadal surveys until it died in the U.S. and Europe. Um, and Big Bang Observer, which is perhaps the antithesis of a small mission. It's a mere 12 three-meter beryllium mirrors in solar orbit uh, to detect every gravitational wave event that ever happened anywhere in the universe. Um, so with those credentials for small satellites, let's begin. <laughs> uh, so our panelists are, uh, starting at that end, I guess, Vasily Sanjilopoulos, who does uh, space plasma physics and has been involved in the Themis and Artemis missions that I guess we'll talk about. Uh, next is Ranga Ramchari, who's been involved in most of the infrared missions of the last 15 years or so, um, and does observational cosmology with them when he's not managing them. Uh, next, Phil Nicholson, a uh, planetary scientist, uh, famous for discovering satellites and rings and involved in the Cassini mission, I guess, at the moment. And Chris Martin, uh, is the PI of the Galax mission, does UV astronomy, the cosmic web, and all those sorts of things. Okay, um, so as originally envisaged, this was, I think the title says Small Satellites in Astrophysics, so I figured this was all astrophysicists, and then there were these Nicholson and Angelopoulos guys, and I wondered, well, you know, that's kind of broad astrophysics, so I said astro-planetary space physics up there. So we've heard lots about small satellites. Most of, as, uh, so far as I can tell, most of the mini-sats are looking down and doing Earth's uh, ionosphere and radio and some imaging and all sorts of those things. So here we're mainly talking about small satellites either measuring stuff in Earth's interplanetary or going out to other planets doing the same thing or looking up instead of down. So since we hadn't heard too much of those, I thought I'd just quickly uh, <clears throat> run through a little bit of the reasons for them and a few examples just to get people's creative ideas going. And then we'll hear from the panelists a little bit more detail about the missions they've been thinking about, and then we'll open it up for back and forth audience questions, brilliant ideas from the audience that we'll quickly write down and submit, and you'll work out over the next uh, week. Um, <clears throat> so as I was thinking about it, there are basically two different reasons for going to small satellites. One is small is cheap, um, and that's always a good thing. Um, but it can also be, there was, for a while, NASA was doing faster, better, cheaper, but then it became clear that actually that meant you pick any two out of the three and not all three. Um, but there are reasons sometimes where faster is a good thing, that you don't want to wait 25 years for your mission to fly, so maybe you do something less for quicker. Um, sometimes it can be better. Uh, that, for example, I think is particularly the case in small satellites and other planets. If you want to drop 25 little things into Jupiter's atmosphere, 
and send the data back, that's probably a $2 billion mission, but you couldn't do it without a whole bunch of cheap ones, otherwise it would be a $30 billion mission. Um, and sometimes in astrophysics, it's the cheap that gets you the idea, but then it's quite limiting sometimes. So another reason for going for small, cheap satellites is not so much individual satellites, but constellations to study many points in space, to monitor many parts of the sky at once, many objects at once. Or in the case of low-frequency radio, you actually want many satellites which are just elements of an array synthesizing a much larger telescope. And I guess one thing that would be useful to discuss is this question of how much cheaper Presumably, in general, most of the cost of a satellite is in designing the first one. If you make 20 copies or 50 copies, there's the question is, does the next 10 cost the same as the first one, or is it 1% or one half? It probably depends a bit on the satellite, so that would be another interesting thing to learn about. Um, <clears throat> okay, so here's uh, my little collection of missions that I happen to know about. So these are standalone small missions, so single spacecraft, which have actually flown. So this is important. There are many more which <laughs> haven't actually flown. Um, uh, Shri briefly mentioned MOST, otherwise known as the Humble Space Telescope. Uh, it's a 15-centimeter telescope, so yay big. Uh, 53-kilogram satellite, cost 10 million Canadian, that's 7 million U.S., uh, one arc second pointing, this was really a first for such a small satellite, typically there are many arc minute pointings, and it's been flying since 2003, doing asteroid seismology of the brightest stars, by brightest I mean the 10 you can see from New York City downtown with the lights on, right? so Procyon and others, so it just monitors their brightness steadily over time and looks for the small variations as the stars' uh, convection zones oscillate. Then um, I think Vasilis will talk about Themis and Artemis. It was five microsatellites monitoring the uh, solar wind, bow shock, magnetopause, magnetotail, been flying since 2007. And it even had enough propulsion to turn itself from Themis into Artemis by moving two of the satellites to study stuff around the moon. Uh, Chipsat's been mentioned a few times as the one and only NASA UNEX mission. Uh, that's the Cosmic Hot Interstellar Plasma Spectrometer, which was a uh, high-resolution uh, spectrometer in the hard UV to study the hot gas in the local solar bubble around the, uh, <clears throat> the sun's region of the interstellar medium. Uh, there's FORMOSAT-3, uh, Taiwanese mission, uh, otherwise known as COSMIC, that consists, consists of six microsatellites uh, with GPS receivers to study occultation and transmitters to do tomography of the Earth's ionosphere that's been flying since 2006. Um, and now here are some concepts. So the first three they ran over onto the next page are basically all the same. There's the small, the medium, and the large, or the low cost, the medium, and the deluxe version. So the cheap version, uh, which is supposed to have, although it doesn't seem to have it's been around, I think, for about a decade now, but it's never quite, it seems to have gotten too far. It's supposed to have two paid for by Austria, two by Canada, and two by Poland. There's six 35-millimeter SLR cameras launched into space, each with so 70-millimeter uh, uh, focal length, 3-centimeter aperture, this big, uh, each monitoring 24 degrees. Uh, and there are <coughs> cubes 20 centimeters on the side, supposed to be 7 kilograms each. And the idea is to do two-color photometry of the stars you can see from Pasadena with your naked eye. And so that's lots of 535 of them in the whole sky, uh, hot star variables. 
Uh, that's the low-cost version. Maybe I'll skip to the medium-sized version. It's called TESS. That's the MIT SMEX proposal, which is, I think, in its second turn in the SMEX proposals. It was first selected in 2007, then again last year for Phase A studies. Uh, consists of six, or in some versions, nine 12-centimeter telescopes, so a little bit bigger than your SLR. Um, all stuck on a single spacecraft, each with 18-degree field of view, so roughly three times or four times the aperture of the uh, previous one, monitoring a 72-degree strip, covering the whole sky every 96 minutes, and that goes down to stars that you need binoculars from a good site to see, not naked eye from Pasadena. Uh, and here the data rate becomes a little bit of an issue and some of the expense. Um, and then the, the more deluxe version is PLATO, which competed in the ESA medium uh, survey last year. It was not selected. Um, and it's not a small mission, but I think one could conceive of ways it could have been a mission. So this consists of 50 18-centimeter telescopes, so getting this big, 50 of them all mounted on a single spacecraft. Well, you could imagine having 50 spacecraft and doing them one at a time and maybe making it getting started somehow, each with a five-degree single of view. And the concept of both PLATO and TESS, as you probably all heard of NASA's Kepler mission, which stares at a fixed 100-square-degree region of sky and has found lots of stars being eclipsed by Earth's size and larger planets, the problem is that the ones everybody claims to be most interested in are the Earth mass ones, and it's impossible with any telescope on the ground to actually verify any of these because the stars are too faint. So the mistake was that Kepler looks at a small field of view and monitors lots of faint stars that we can't get radial velocities of, even with 10-meter telescopes. Uh, whereas TESS, Plato, and Murex, uh, so, sorry, and Bright would do brighter stars, which we could confirm the planets of. So that would be nice to do, but none of these, these are all concepts, not actual missions. Uh, Mirax, again, has been sort of stuck for a long time in Brazil. That's an X-ray mission, um, roughly similar to NASA R, NASA's RXDE, which ran for uh, up until about two years ago for the, the decade or so before then. Uh, it monitored the whole X-ray sky. Lots of things go off every year in the X-rays. The world now has no capability for monitoring the whole sky for things going bump in the X-ray. It would be great to have one. And that's an example of something which would be fairly small, cheap. It wouldn't revolutionize. We've monitored the whole sky for 20 years, but every year something new explodes in the sky, and so it's good to have one, and whoever owns it can write lots of nice papers, even though perhaps it's not opening a new window on the universe. It's opening, continuing the time in the universe. Uh, let's see, okay, so we covered those. Uh, then the other thing which comes up all the time is, uh, I think these have been talked about for about 40 years, is <laughs> low-frequency radio arrays. And here, this is 10 kilohertz to 10 megahertz, the parts of the radio spectrum that do not get through the Earth's ionosphere. And the wavelengths are kilometers. So you need to, if you want to have any angular resolution, you need baselines of many thousands of kilometers. So you need lots of little spacecraft. There's no point in building an array that's thousands of kilometers it's on the Earth because the Earth's background is about a million times the astronomical background auroral kilometric radiation at low frequencies and military radars and other stuff at high frequencies. So the ideal place is to do it on the far side of the moon, either permanently or temporarily as you go behind it. And so lots of little satellites are a good way of getting an array. 
Um, and this is a mostly unexplored region of the radio spectrum. We've never had high angular resolution at that frequency. Um, now, another thing I thought we should uh, try to make sure we talk about is, as opposed to satellites, if you can make little boxes that you bolt onto the side of other spacecraft, that's also useful. Um, and the earliest ones of these that I know about were the interplanetary network of gamma ray burst monitors that started in the 1970s. And basically every time there was an interplanetary spacecraft from uh, either Russia or the United States, there were little gamma ray detectors stuck onto them and they went off and they made a network many astronomical units across. And they provided the only high precision positions of gamma ray bursts until the discovery of X-ray afterglows. Uh, just by triangulating the arrival time of the different spacecraft at Jupiter, Mars, and the Earth. Um, so that network is sort of dying down, but that's an example of folding things on. Um, another example is the solar mass ejection imager, uh, which I didn't know about until last year when I discovered it actually has an astronomical application. So this consists of three CCD cameras, I think more or less like the, these kind, but with a really crappy lens, much worse than the lens in this, so that they can cover 3 by 60 degrees. Um, so they cover 90% of the sky every orbit with 24 arc minute resolution. This really sucks. <laughs> it's the full moon roughly resolution. Um, but they've been monitoring the whole sky for eight years. And the amazing thing astronomically, it was designed, of course, to study solar mass ejections, but it also discovered sun-grazing comets. But the really amazing thing is that they discovered several novae which had been missed by astronomers which were second magnitude for a month. Okay? <laughs> now, there are amateur astronomers out every night. You would think that they would notice something as bright as the 50th brightest star in the sky, but no, these were missed. Okay, so there is a point that if you launch a cell phone camera and actually reduce the data, <laughs> you can discover things. And the other nice thing is that they got a magnitude point every hour for years, so they get beautiful light curves, <clears throat> uh, completely uh, unprecedented for these very bright novae, which if people had known about them, they could have done great spectroscopy and solved lots of problems with novae. So perhaps never underestimate how, how small something useful could be. Uh, Let's see, Ranga, I hope, will tell us more about Zebra. Um, <clears throat> that was an idea to get out beyond the nasty zodiacal light that makes it hard to study the infrared and extragalactic background from all the first stars and active galaxies that formed. Um, so you'd like to bolt something like that that goes out to beyond Jupiter. Um, <clears throat> and then finally, the, the LIMSAT-2, if there is a LIMSAT-1, it will probably be ultraviolet, but then next most promising mission looked to me to be the infrared version that was an all-sky telescope, again, aperture 30 to 50 centimeters. And in an hour of integration, you, get as, you can get as deep as Hubble Space Telescope in these bands with a much bigger field of view than Hubble Space Telescope. Of course, Hubble Space Telescope gets here in a few minutes, but if your field of view is 50 times larger, you can map as fast as Hubble Space Telescope. And you could cover the whole sky to J of 23, which would be better than has ever been done from the ground, uh, and requiring a, only a fairly modest telescope. OK, so these are some issues for discussion. Uh, but maybe before we get into those, I'll uh, turn it over maybe. So each of you want to spend five minutes discussing <clears throat> the missions and concepts you have. I know Phil and Vasilis have presentations. I don't know if you want to do them. 
Sure. Did it now? Yeah, okay. which one do you want to go first? Uh, why don't you go first? Because I think what Phil has in mind is basically what you've done for the Earth on everywhere else in the solar system. So maybe we'll start <laughs> with the Earth. By the way, Snow it was also units about the same time, oh. and it was a successful mission. So another good example of what can be done in universities, but it was not a small satellite. I think it was like 50 kilos. Great. Thanks very much for the opportunity. I promised I'll just go for five minutes, even though it's 12 geographs, so I'll skip a few. Pardon, for that. Pardon me for that. And I want to bring uh, here the uh, uh, experience we've had from Themis and explain why, based on that experience, uh, constellation microsatellites, CubeSats, um, in magnetospheric physics is the next best, best thing that can be done in the field and why it will bring about the revolution. It is not just futuristic. It is not... Uh, just around the corner. It is here, to, and uh, if it happens today, uh, it will um, completely revolutionize space physics. It's the next best thing to happen in space physics. So um, it's something that um, I, I've been very keen on seeing happen for 10 years now, more than that. And Themis, in part, was designed to, um, um, uh, to um, reduce the fear that people have uh, with constellations. It was done in, with uh, exciting science in mind, in mind that would uh, win uh, us an explorer, but also bring about a new era in space physics. And I think that era has finally arrived thanks to the um, NSF's uh, lead in um, relaxing the constraints that uh, can get CubeSats to orbit. So basically we studied the uh, in, in, in space physics, we study the uh, Earth-space environment that starts from the sun. This um, uh, was going to be a movie, but in the interest of time, it, it shows you the sun and coronal mass ejections, billions of uh, tons of gas emitted by the sun that uh, plummet the Earth uh, when the Earth is at the right uh, location, creating uh, magnificent auroras, but also space weather. It's something that we still cannot predict uh, accurately. And the reason is that uh, space weather phenomena, despite the um, havoc they, they wreak on uh, telecommunications uh, systems, on, on ground uh, uh, power distribution lines, uh, and uh, the um, space industry pays uh, billions of dollars in, um, in um, uh, uh, insurance fees every year. Uh, it is uh, something that is still uh, uh, a mystery as to how it uh, actually works because with single satellites we can tell um, global features of the sun of the sun magnetosphere interaction. We can tell climatology, but we cannot tell space weather. And the reason is that individual um, uh, individual um, funny that the movements are actually playing on a different computer here. Uh, let's see if this one plays. No, it doesn't. The, um, the reason is that the space uh, weather is affected by individual bursts of energy that are very localized, kinetic in, in, in um, extent, order of an ion jet radius, 100 kilometers, but they affect the entire medium over 10 to 20 Earth radii in size. And um, although we understand the number of these bursts at a given, um, for a given solar activity, we don't understand uh, how the bursts interact, interact with each other such that their effects are geoeffective. They come all the way to the inner magnetosphere. Uh, and so Themis just addressed one little piece of that problem. What happens to in the individual burst when it starts from some point afar as it comes into Earth? And uh, tackled a very particular problem in the field 
which is what causes substorm, these individual explosions, what is causing the substorm onset. But beyond that, to understand space weather, you need a fleet of satellites. And historically, a cluster in 2000 was launched uh, with four satellites, but it cost $2 billion. And MMS was planned to cost about half a billion, four satellites again, and launched in 2008. Themis was kind of a, um, a, tra a trailblazer for the next generation missions, which is magnetospheric constellation with 100 satellites. CubeSats are ideal, obviously, for that. That NASA was costing at, at uh, half a billion. Well, since 2003, the picture has changed. MMS now is costing one billion. Um, Themis launched, of course, and Micron is way out uh, pie in the sky in most people's minds uh, because um, uh, because the uh, potential of CubeSats has not sunk in to the community yet. I think if if, if um, this group. Uh, can um, make that uh, realization uh, uh, come, become real. They can, can uh, make the potential of CubeSats for uh, uh, magnetospheric constellation class missions uh, become real such that NASA can actually consider such missions for uh, uh, future explorers. So can you say a little bit MMS, like so the fear is MMS is 250 million a spacecraft and then they multiply by 100 to get that's, take That's right. So what are the the MMS is a cluster-like mission that was built uh, um, uh, uh, with uh, center management uh, where there was uh, PI-led instruments, but the mission is led by uh, Goddard. Uh, and so uh, part of the uh, reason for cost is, of course, how one manages the mission. Uh, uh, <laughs> was um, also supposed to be center-led, uh, the uh, example from Themis where, where you have a PI-led explorer class mission is that you can control costs much better that way. Um, MMS uh, spacecraft size is on the order of two tons, so it was clustered. Uh, Themis spacecraft size, I'll give you some pictures, uh, was uh, 130 kilos uh, wet, 40% fuel. Extremely capable, one kilometer per second delta V. Um, that enabled uh, the mission to uh, change, uh, be reconfigured from an Earth orbiting to a lunar orbiting mission. Uh, it, the science basically doubled as a result. Um, so pop, uh, mission success for such a class mission where you try to control costs and uh, you know, science per dollar is maximized relies on high heritage instruments and that allows <coughs> attention to manufacturability and risk reduction control costs, control schedule, by um, building um, uh, basically the smarts on the ground and having the, um, uh, the instruments, basically the uh, spacecraft, be copies of a spacecraft that you wring out all the uh, problems uh, off right from the beginning. The first one, you know, uh, most of the cost is in the design. Okay, so the first one will cost X, the second one will cost half of that, the third one half of that. And then, you know, it, for, to build five, it costs uh, less than twice the cost of the first. Uh, the same thing, the same uh, uh, lessons you learn from the, uh, um, uh, the performance failure reports that you get. On the first, you get 100, the second, 50, the third, 30, and by the fifth, you're done. You know exactly the design. So you, if one builds a constellation, one needs to build in that process of learning into the um, development so that you launch one to ring out all the problems and then you apply lessons learned to the rest of them. Um, 
So this is the concept of constellation that was back in 98, was proposed by NASA as a solar terrestrial probe line mission, those $600 million dollar class missions, that has since evaporated because of the community's reluctance to accept the idea that you can build and launch 100 sat satellites for the cost of a MIDEX or a cost of a reasonable cost of a NASA program. The solid the um, Space Technology 5 mission that was launched by NASA in 2006 was uh, uh, designed to address some of these issues, but uh, rather than solving the problem of, uh, uh, of uh, decreasing the fear of people uh, regarding cost escalation, it actually uh, accentuated the problem because uh, it was uh, proposed to be a $20 million mission, yet it only, when it launched it was beyond $80 million. So, and part of the problem was the launch vehicle. The costs of the, um, of the Pegasus kept growing and growing back then. And, uh, and uh, it was initially um, supposed to be a piggyback, then to go on a Pegasus, and then. Um, so by the end, uh, although it tested seven new technologies, I don't think people talk uh, very much about it now as a trailblazer for, uh, for uh, MagCon. But what has come to the foray is CubeSats, of course. Now you have them launched by dozens. And uh, it is clear to people in uh, magnetospheric and aerospheric physics that uh, uh, instruments that, are, that can perform um, great science, magnetometers, plasma detectors, uh, energetic particle detectors, can be packaged in a 3U to a 6U form and do phenomenal science. They don't have to be the, the most... Uh, uh, highest geometric factor, the most uh, jazzy instruments that do mass discrimination. But uh, because of their numbers, they can, as a fleet, they can do science that has never been, uh, has only been dreamed of before. Because they tap the wave number space. So to resolve things in space and time at the same time, you need multiple spacecraft. You need constellations. And it's new science that can come out of this, and the field is precisely at the right point for this kind of science now. So here I have listed uh, three types of constellations, starting from ionospheric, that are the most easy to uh, achieve, with 60 CubeSats um, in uh, sun-synchronous orbits. And of course, the key is to address key science objectives that will, will actually sell the mission to NASA today. And this is entirely possible with an ionospheric electrodynamic coupling first, and then moving on to a space weather coupler that goes up to 12 Earth radii, moving on to a tail reconnection and solar wind energy coupler at 20 RE. So progressively you build a large, uh, this way you build a large uh, magnetospheric constellation from little pieces, each one addressing a very key uh, goal in the field, but each one building on the previous one's successes. Um, so that's the idea and that's where I want to leave it. Now, if these are proposed as explorers, they would have their own sure, dedicated I launch. I just to one test them um, but uh, uh, um, I believe Aerospace has launched a um, Aerospace Corporation has launched a um, uh, a shot uh, on the shuttle a one um, U or a three U. It was a one U uh, CubeSat that had solid on it with a lot of paperwork. It can be done. Space is also, that was not a full, that was the CubeSat in the normal dimensions, but they're on the, some of the next uh, 
That's good to hear. So yeah, it is possible. It just you have to follow through paperwork. That's excellent too. Yes. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Great. Thanks. So, Phil, did you want to uh, continue to the bigger solar system? Okay. So. Uh, few comments on uh, solar system exploration, but uh, in particular, given my own interests and the group at Cornell that I'm, uh, the stuff I'm going to be reporting on today is stuff that's come out of discussions with uh, Matt Hedman and Matt Tiscarino, both research associates at Cornell, Joe Burns, myself, and Mike Johnson here over in the engineering. And uh, the actual mission concept I'll talk about in a minute is uh, a NIAC proposal that Michael has largely written that came out of some of these science discussions and our interest is in the outer solar system rather than the inner solar system, so I won't be talking about uh, sample return and chemical analyses in the same way that Julie did earlier. And we also tend to have more of an astrophysical or at least a remote sensing bent to our, to our, our interests. But before I show you uh, this possible mission we've been thinking about, let me make a few general comments. Uh, and these are really relevant to the outer solar system in particular if you want to use some sort of small satellites to do studies of those. And some of them are pretty obvious and some have been touched on already by other speakers. But just to remind you of a few, uh, first of these in terms of reliability are the long flight times. Uh, Newton still rules. You still have to somehow follow the laws of orbital mechanics to get to the outer solar system. It's hard to get to Jupiter in less than two years. It's hard to get to Uranus and Neptune in less than seven years. If you want to get to the Kuiper belt, then you could be talking about 10 years or more. So long flight times, which implies reliability of the instruments. Um, something that might help that might come along there is the future development of ion drives might turn out to be a more efficient way of powering these small satellites rather than just very large rockets. Uh, another thing that comes along with the distances is, is obviously the communications problems. You're trying to send data back from 4 to 5 AU from Jupiter up to 30 or 40 AU or more if you're trying to get to Neptune or the Kuiper belt beyond. So that uh, makes things really difficult if you can't carry a 4 or 5 meter diameter antenna with you to send back the data, which is kind of hard on a CubeSat. Um, that may be partly overcome by tailoring the kind of science you do, so it doesn't involve sending back lots of images, for example. So you have lower bit rate, and maybe in the future, optical communication will make this possible with much smaller, effectively optical antennas, lenses, rather than giant radio antennas. Uh, power sources are the other major problem in the outer solar system. For most outer solar system missions, solar panels have turned out to be inadequate. I think the Juno mission is the one notable exception where I believe it's actually going to Jupiter using solar panels to work. But most outer solar system missions have used RTG, nuclear power sources. It's hard to imagine dragging a bunch of RTGs along, let alone a fission reactor on a CubeSat-sized satellite. We did some studies of nuclear power sources as part of the decadal survey, and even talking about flagship-sized missions of several tons, we came to the conclusion that an actual nuclear reactor was just hopeless. We were just barely getting to the point where running at idle mode, we had more power than we needed, and three-quarters of the weight of the spacecraft was the reactor. So... Uh, you really need to be uh, doing 2001 in the discovery before you start talking about nuclear, real nuclear-powered spacecraft. Uh, an interesting idea that I don't think has been investigated much yet, but which makes use of the local environment. There's not much sunlight in the outer solar system, 
But if we're talking about orbiters around the outer planets, they all have really substantial magnetic fields, and Jupiter has a whopper of all planetary magnetic fields. With a small satellite and some sort of tether arrangement, it may well be possible to extract uh, electrical power out of the fact that you're flying at kilometers per second through this strong magnetic field. So in the same way that it's used for magnetic uh, orientation, I guess, in Earth-orbiting spacecraft, there have been some thoughts that this may actually be possible to get useful amounts of power for a very small satellite out of this. And uh, finally, an issue that has been touched upon is the radiation environment, and I don't have any answers for that, but again, unfortunately, Jupiter is the case where you might get power, but it's the case where the radiation environment is really terrible. So how you can manage to shield a spacecraft that's very small, we heard this morning about statements about wall thicknesses of millimeters or so, I don't think it's going to cut it in terms of radiation hardening for a spacecraft in close orbit to Jupiter. So that's a real major problem. Uh, let me mention a few. Um, that being said, I'm going to ignore how we actually solve all those problems because I'm not an engineer, so I don't have to do that. Uh, let me suggest a few possible outer solar system missions that might actually be enabled by the notion of using small satellites. And here, uh, to my mind, the big advantage here is not the fact that the satellite itself is small, although there may be some opportunities such as getting power that, out of the field that you can do with a small satellite, but the fact that you can launch many of these. So what I'm thinking of is going to be not really a small mission as a whole. In the, in the end, the spacecraft is probably going to be large, but you can do science which, which involves deploying dozens, if not hundreds, of small objects. Uh, and that includes the obvious thing of magnetospheric mapping, the same thing that Vasilis has talked about. The Earth applies equally to the outer magnetospheres. We've made a lot of progress studying them. Voyager had flybys. Cassini and Galileo have returned much more data. But if you listen to the people talking about this, they are always bemoaning the fact that they're sitting on this side of the magnetosphere watching some really interesting phenomenon and it's 30 days before they get to look at the other side of the magnetosphere and see what's going on, and that's too long for the timescales or the processes that are happening. They really need to be able to look, look at the same place simultaneously or close to simultaneously for many different vantage points to really make improvements in magnetospheric understanding. So swarms of satellites is clearly the way to do that. Um, another thing that's still mentioned before is... Um, for the outer planets, a lot of the interest is the meteorology of what's going on in the atmosphere. We get most of that data now by taking images of the planets and tracking the motions of clouds, uh, which you can do. But an alternative would be to actually drop things down into the atmosphere and radio track them, and you could get much more precise data, including studying local phenomena like turbulence or the development of small eddies in the atmosphere. So this is something that hasn't been much thought about yet. There's been a little work thinking about doing this at Venus, which is easier to get to than the outer planets, but really looking large and downstream, doing this in Jupiter, dropping dozens of these little guys at targeted locations, say the Great Red Spot, for example, or a big storm that's arisen on one of the giant planets. That obviously would require some sort of mothership that would be collecting all of the data from these probes in the atmosphere, which is the only way you could send the data back to the Earth, I think. Uh, something that's not quite so obvious, but I think might be useful. Uh, Juno is going to Jupiter primarily to study Jupiter's internal gravity field and magnetic field, and there was a compromise in choosing the orbits that Juno could work in to both be sensitive to those fields, especially the Doppler shift be usable to the Earth to get the gravity, um, while also arranging to have the solar panels pointing at the sun, which turned out to be a major compromise. 
um, a little bit like, mag like magnetosphere, not quite as much. You could study the gravity field much better if you had a bunch of orbits that were a variety, whole variety of inclinations rather than one single inclination. So you could imagine doing a much more complex gravity field measurement with a series of, in this case, maybe half a dozen smallish satellites which had nothing more complicated than basically a radio beacon and probably a magnetometer because you'd want to measure the magnetic field close into the planet too. So that could benefit. Um, a few other things in different kind of directions. Uh, Julie mentioned the plumes of Enceladus that were discovered by Cassini. They were discovered by taking pictures, of course, of the plumes. Uh, stellar occultations were done that demonstrated by looking at a star through the plumes that there was, in fact, water vapor in the plumes. So that was done in the ultraviolet looking at a star, but the real excitement came when Cassini actually was able to fly through the plumes with a dust detector, which happened to be capable of making chemical measurements and discovered that a fraction of the dust particles had sodium chloride in them. And that's really what made the people thinking about the interior of Enceladus excited. So you could imagine a future mission in which you have a dedicated instrument that basically just has the dust detector and nothing else and does repeated flybys through, say, the plumes of Enceladus. That could be a very rather specialized but rather interesting mission. You don't really don't need the rest of the spacecraft, in a sense, to do that. Um, and finally, something else that Julie mentioned, for, in terms of studying the icy satellites of the outer solar system, you could learn a lot if you could physically put beacons down on the surface that were physically strongly connected to the surface. And I, the most sensible thing is probably to put penetrators into the surface, as has been talked about a lot before. And, goes back to the Vietnam War when I was a student here. Um, so penetrators with a simple, again, radio beacon on them. You could study the spin states of the satellites, any spin librations they have. These are kind of tricky things, but in the end, they give you information about the interior structure, the moment of inertia, whether or not there might be a fluid layer in the interior. Uh, those things could be learned by putting physical, simply radio beacons locked onto the surface of small icy satellites. So putting one of those on Europa, Io, even Titan, although that means getting through the atmosphere to the surface, they could be really interesting missions. There it's probably just one or two of these things you need to put down. So uh, there's a bunch of interesting things you could do for the outer solar system, but there are these problems of getting there. And I'm just going to pick out a couple of slides out of this presentation just to show you one other idea in the vein of this that uh, we thought about in this was to do with studying uh, Saturn's rings and the collisional regime. And here's a little uh, very accurate, high-precision artist concept of uh, ring particles <laughs> orbiting in Saturn. Uh, to make a few points, we know quite a lot from remote sensing. We know these ring particles go down to a few millimeters in size up to about 10 meters in size. So they're from little marbles up to the size of microbuses. Um, but that's all indirect. We don't have any data that has resolutions of such that we can see them directly. Um, some of the questions we don't know about very well, so we have a rough idea of the size distribution. We'd like to know more and about the shapes. But in particular, we'd like to know the velocity distribution of the particles because that's the key to how they dynamically interact. Um, we'd like to actually watch collisions between particles. Are they elastic or inelastic? Watch how they happen. Learn something about how they spin. All of those are really hard to do from remote sensing and there's an obligatory slide saying if you learn about Saturn's rings, then you'll understand everything that's worth knowing about galaxies and uh, protoplanetary disks as well. But uh, let me, I want to skip ahead then to show you. So there is one way in which there actually has been a NASA study as to how we might do this kind of mission. This was done uh, in support 
for the uh, Planetary Science Decadal Survey two years ago. So we did a study of uh, what's become known as the Saturn Ring Observer. And this is not a small satellite. This is a flagship-sized mission in the end. This is a large Cassini-sized satellite that actually hovers above the rings. It uses thrusters to either have periodic thrust or slow continuous thrust. If it's an ion rocket, it flies a couple of kilometers above the rings in a non-Keplerian orbit, looks down at the rings with enough resolution with cameras to actually photograph the ring particles. And since you're in orbit with the rings, you're traveling at the same speed as the ring particles. So even though everything is traveling at 25 kilometers per second, you're hardly moving relative to the rings, so you can actually watch the collisional mechanics going on. So this is a nice idea. It's one way to get at some of these things, as I said. But this turns out to be a very expensive mission. It takes a god-awful amount of fuel to get into orbit. Get into a circular orbit above the rings is something like six kilometers per second if you do it ballistically. So it turns out to be a very expensive, very difficult mission, mostly because of the propulsion and the fuel. So this is the, uh, the other alternative. Rather than stand off in the rings with a high-class camera system and look at it, why not throw a bunch of little pseudo-ring particles into the rings and basically let them thermally equilibrate with the rings and bounce around. And again, you just basically have radio beacons. So here we have conceptually a bunch of little CubeSats that have been through unspecified methods deposited into the rings, and those methods might be tricky. And then you would basically track these from some kind of uh, mothership that would be off in orbit. So a little bit like the other out-of-planet missions I said, you would probably need a larger spacecraft to send the data back to the Earth. But the key data would come from these little objects, and they would basically become ring particles. And the sort of instruments you would have on them would be uh, basically a radio beacon so that you could Doppler track them, uh, a simple accelerometer so that you could directly study the physical collisions and measure the accelerations and changes, and then send that data back at a pretty small volume, and then getting a little more ambitious, maybe some kind of photometer, a large absolute photometer that would look up and measure the amount of sunlight coming in. That would tell you something about where in the ring the particle was, whether it was up near the top surface of the ring or the bottom or whether it was in the middle somewhere, but not cameras or more complicated things. So that's just an idea of something you might do. This is a, a sort of cluster but in a different environment. And uh, this comes back to a point that Julie made before, which was one of the big benefits here is the uh, sacrificial nature of these kind of things. <coughs> Even if you imagine putting a big spacecraft into the rings and do this, which I think nobody would want to do, the danger to a single spacecraft of being crunched between two 10-meter-sized ring particles and that being the end of the mission would be no PI would want to do that. But if you can put a whole bunch of small things in, then many of these are expendable, and the assumption is that many of them would wind up getting destroyed in the process of either insertion into the ring or their life but with a bunch of them, you could afford to do this. So this is the one case in which I think the sort of sacrificial nature of these small satellites could be a really uh, important part of the science. Is it, is it known that there are many collisions between these particles, or is it speculation? Uh, well, it's pretty simple physics. We know the optical depth is of order one for the rings. If you were to look down through the rings, you know, there's only about a 30% chance that a photon would make it through and not hit something. We know the orbital periods, which are of order 5 to 10 hours for the ring particles. So a sort of simple particle-in-a-box calculation says that a ring particle has a collision with another one several times per orbit. So the collision periods are of order an hour. Of course, a really big particle will collide with another really big one somewhat less frequently than that. But smaller collisions are going on all the time. 
The saving grace is that we also know that the rings are less than 10 meters thick. That's pretty definite based on its indirect measurements, but they're fairly clear. And from that vertical thickness, you can figure out the random velocity component, the non-Keplerian component of the velocities. Uh, And that turns out to be only millimeters per second. So we infer that the collisions are quite inelastic. The system has damped itself down to basically a minimum energy state, keeps the smallest velocity that it basically can without becoming gravitationally unstable. So it's big particles colliding all the time, but at extremely low relative velocities. But the only catch is, would you like to be squeezed between two buses coming together at a centimeter per second? And maybe not. <laughs> I would say we have not got that far. This is a subject of a NIAC proposal, which is basically to do a sort of paper study of these things in more detail. So this is really uh, pretty much at the sort of uh, cartoon and back of an envelope state. Michael might want to say a little more, but we, we haven't done any, any kind of in-depth study of this yet. The, the, the orbiter, the Saturn Ring Observer, has had a sort of a more serious study done of it, but not these in-situ experiments. You talked about these hovering above the uh, rings, but I assume if you're, you're looking over periods of more, that you're, you're going to be penetrating that, the rings and... and uh, yeah, sorry, I meant to... I might have fuzzed the two. This was, this was the mission that was studied as part of the decadal survey. This was a big satellite that would stay out of the rings. So this one would have thrusters on it. You can see the little uh, schematic ion rockets here so firing. So it is station-keeping above the rings, but the thrust turns out to be really tiny to keep something a few kilometers above the ring plane. Uh, you could do it even with chemical thrusters by just a little squirt a couple of times per orbit, but the elegant way is just to have ion thrusters putting a small continuous thrust. So this one would stay out of the rings, back off, and simply take images to do the studies. I thought I heard you say your sacrificial ones were going to stay above the rings, but that would be... No, no, no. The idea is they would go directly into the rings, and the physics would be that they would be colliding with the rings, and they would partake of the random velocities and the dynamics of the ring particles. So they'd really become representative ring particles themselves. Your accelerators on those would give you some of that information. Yes, so the accelerometers, uh, presumably they're not going to see the free fall of their orbit around Saturn if... Einstein is right, but they are going to detect the physical collisions, so that we'll get a direct measure of the time history of how squishy the collisions are, what the delta Vs really are. Okay, so. So I guess now we come to the, the astronomy and astrophysics and cosmology and all of that. So I guess, Chris, do you want to say a few things. Can you hear me? Um, Okay, well, I come uh, at this uh, subject uh, with a fair amount of experience, so (laughs) uh, maybe I'm not um, a uh, uh, flower-eyed optimist about the subject, but uh, (laughs) uh, because I've actually built, I guess what you would call in this nomenclature a mini sat uh, it was 250 kilograms uh, small explorer uh, and I've also been involved in a number of um, uh, smaller uh, experiments um, 
And so I sort of wanted to first talk a little bit about what we mean by small. <laughs> um, and because uh, it, can, it can mean size, weight, it can also mean cost, it can mean uh, frequency. In my own view, there's a, there's a vast imbalance in the NASA astrophysics program uh, in which there's a uh, uh, significant fraction of the resources, effectively half, are going to one large flagship mission at a time, at this particular time, uh, and possibly for the rest of time because there's so many flagships lined up behind them. Um, and then uh, a much smaller fraction of the budget is going to explorers, uh, about a quarter of that, and then uh, an even smaller fraction uh, is going to smaller, uh, even smaller missions that are more within the frame, framework we're talking about. Uh, so that means that uh, I, I guess the, the flight frequency is low and the ability to respond to new uh, opportunities in science, new, new phenomena that have been discovered uh, is, is, is minimal. Uh, and uh, in my view, two of the most important aspects, the ability to test new technology, which makes the next generation of missions possible and affordable and compelling um, uh, and, and doable in a reasonable flight rate, uh, is less possible. And, and training, not just training the next generation of space astro uh, uh, experimenters, but actually getting them into the field and keeping them uh, as opposed to going into uh, finance. <laughs> so uh, I actually think in astrophysics we're about to uh, reach a crisis point um, because we, we have reached, in some sense, the SSC moment in our field in space astrophysics because uh, it's, it's very difficult. It, it, it has been, over the last 10 years, more and more difficult to conceive of missions that were compelling that were not... Uh, uber gigantic um, and, uh, and it would take 20 years to fund and build. So I really think that uh, we need to change the cost paradigm um, on all scales and one of the ways I think you need to do that is to have a much more balanced program in which um, you're uh, training a really good set of people that are the A team that can ensure that the even the large missions are most cost-efficient as possible, that you're developing the technology that lowers the cost of even the large missions but makes possible compelling medium and small missions. Um, and uh, that's, that's currently lacking. We have a program, a suborbital program, in balloons and in sounding rockets, uh, but they're, they've always been struggling for funding uh, and the science, in particular in the rocket program, the science in astrophysics has, has been receding the science opportunities because so much has already been done by larger uh, 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 satellite missions. Um, and although experiments can be conceived, which are new and interesting, it's getting harder and harder to do that. Uh, so... Uh, the sounding rocket community actually came together a couple, uh, a couple of years ago prior to the, our decadal survey and talked about ways in which uh, we could have missions that were in the few million dollar cost range, but not necessarily small in the sense of, that we're talking about at this workshop, 
in, in size, uh, although there may be there may be some crossover um, that that would that would have at least a few orbits in Leo and and be able to do reasonable science uh, as opposed to what you can do in five minutes on a suborbital sounding rocket flight. Um, so so I think I think. Uh, see, at least from my perspective, I think flight frequency, uh, access to space, uh, the cost, the cost of the mission, all those things are extremely important and, and, and in a sense broaden, broaden the scope of what, at least in astrophysics, uh, and I think in all fields, but in particular in astrophysics where we're fighting this, um, the physical limits uh, of uh, uh, the detecting fate photons from distant objects. So um, uh, I do think that uh, new technology does uh, uh, that does enable very you know interesting possible new missions that are small uh, in the certainly in the in the microsat range uh, the ten to hundred kilogram range uh, such as limsat. Um, which it's more or less that range. <laughs> it's the upper end. Uh, uh, and uh, basically when you're talking about small astrophysics missions, you're fighting two things. You're fighting um, uh, lambda over D. Uh, so there's a spatial resolution issue, and it, it, as you go faint, the, the number density of objects becomes high, and you become confusion limited. Um, and uh, also as you go faint, you run out of photons. Um, in, certainly in the infrared, optical, UV, and X-ray. Um, so apertures, small apertures, are really an issue, uh, a fundamental issue. Uh, on the other hand, um, there is a range of parameter space that remains interesting. Uh, if you take <coughs> uh, Liouville's theorem, tells you that the area of the detector times the solid angle of the beam focused on the detector is uh, uh, constant uh, and is equal to the area, the collecting area of the telescope times the field of view of the telescope. So um, if you have a relatively fast optical system and, uh, and detectors have been getting larger, you can actually have a large grasp in the sense of effective area times field of view. Um, and that, that allows you to go for many of the things that uh, both Sri and, and Sturl alluded to, large area surveys of the sky, rapid surveys for rare uh, transients. Um, for example, gamma ray bursts uh, were discovered by gamma ray instruments that don't really point, so, uh, and they happen to go off more or less once a day, at least the brighter ones, um, and somewhere in the sky. We have no <laughs> real optical or UV or infrared equivalent of that capability to find an object that goes off one, once, once in the sky per day. One could imagine doing that with small, even, you know, cell phone cameras. And now I know we can launch cell phone cameras. So, <laughs> um, so uh, but, but surveys, wide field surveys for, for transient objects, I think is a, that's one of the reasons why I think limb, the LIM group came up with this as, a, as, a, as an opportunity. And in the UV, because the sky is dark, in particular, it's a sweet spot, um, and the UV, many, many transient objects uh, emit quite brightly in the UV, and there's a great deal of contrast between the UV and 
whereas in the optical, there's much less contrast. Even though you might contemplate doing it on the ground, the UV, the contrast is very, is very, very high. Um, and of course, similar kinds of things uh, are being talked about for X-rays. But again, they're kind of at the large end of the of the, of the range um, of, of small sat. Uh, the other the other kinds of things again, Stroll mentioned uh, looking at nearby bright stars for variability. But now we're talking about transits. Uh, so Tess uh, has six telescopes, I believe. I don't know how many, but you could imagine doing. One sixth of that on a small satellite, uh, and 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 or go six times as long or whatever, and still do a great science of that. So that's small, basically fancy Nikon cameras and a and a fairly large but more or less off the shelf detector, um, and you could fly many of those and do tests. Uh, so a constellation would allow you to do that. Um, so the other the other thing. So the nearby universe, uh, the transcendent universe. Uh, the other thing is backgrounds, and uh, because backgrounds tend to cover the whole sky, uh, and they tend to be fairly low surface brightness, you need large pixels. The only issue is that sometimes you have to worry about all the other things that are not background, like all the stars and galaxies in the universe. <laughs> uh, but uh, in the UV, the, the number of stars and galaxies is relatively modest, and there's still, I think, science to be done with the UV background, understanding it's the various components of the UV background, which are probably mostly in the, in the galaxy um, dust scattering, uh, molecular hydrogen fluorescence, uh, coronal gas in the galactic halo. Uh, but, all, but all those things, I think, uh, with relatively modest spectroscopic satellites in the mini range, I think you could, you could do some very interesting physics, um, understanding the local universe, the ISM, the flow of, ga of, of gas baryons from one phase to another, which is still not understood well in the, in the, in the galaxy, and is fundamental to star formation processes uh, in, in, in the universe as a whole. Um, so so, so the, the message there is more detailed, like a lot of the things we're talking about, even local here, more detailed astrophysics of phenomena that are relatively close, but we can get really rich uh, physical information about um, what's really happening in these systems, in these uh, basically baryonic uh, gastrophysics kinds of systems. Um, and then uh, perhaps one could push this, if you could push the, uh, I think Ron will talk about this, uh, if you, uh, the limits in the, in the near UV are zodiacal light, and in the optical and in the near-infrared are all zodiacal light. If you could get outside of the zodi, um, you could do some really interesting things with the optical background, perhaps, and uh, in the near-infrared background where you start, you could be seeing signatures of reionization. Uh, you expect to see bubbles uh, being blown by the first ionizing sources. Those bubbles are going to be very large on the sky. Very low surface brightness, but a, but a relatively wide field, low ap low aperture camera could, in principle, detect those bubbles um, if you were beyond the zodiacal background. Um, and you already mentioned low frequency radio, so I won't mention that. I think that's one of the last areas of the electromagnetic spectrum remaining to be explored. So I think we should do it at some point. Um, and I'm sure there are many other ideas uh, out there waiting to be thought of. Um, 
because I'm old and no longer creative. So <laughs> I'm looking forward to those. Thanks, Chris. So Ranga, if you want to say a little bit. I'll work backwards from three science schools, all of which have been alluded to here. Um, one of which, I think these problems can be solved with CubeSats, or at least smallish scale satellites, if not necessarily CubeSats. Uh, one is the origin of uh, gravity waves by following up the electromagnetic transients associated with these gravity wave events. Uh, for those who are not aware, gravity waves basically happen, basically are produced when two massive objects are spinning around each other. Um, by virtue of being in their gravitational potential energy, they release energy. Just which to make my pet hobby horse, those are gravitational waves. Gravity waves were measured in 1890 in our buoyancy waves. Okay, gravitational. <laughs> um, and as, as they coalesce, you would, <laughs> um, you, you would basically get an increase in the intensity of, uh, of um, the gravita gravitational waves. And the way you measure this is by... Um, how ground-based experiments measure this is by measuring the change in length of an interferometer. And the change in length is very, very small, and when you measure the change in length, you know that a gravitational wave has passed through. So the way we know what the counterpart of a gravitational wave event might be is by looking at the electromagnetic counterpart. Unfortunately, <coughs> from the, the state-of-the-art gravitational wave experiments are not going to be able to localize the position of a gravitational wave event to much less than 100 square degrees. Maybe if Australia came on board and India came on board, and I think India is already on board, then the, the spatial accuracy with which we can pinpoint the locate, location of a gravitational wave event would shrink down to tens of square degrees. But that's still an enormous amount uh, of space that needs to be covered. So if we had an experiment which was monitoring, uh, which was able to monitor, say, tens of square degrees with re relatively rapid turnaround time after a gravitational wave event signal has been detected, then we would be able to pinpoint the counterpart, maybe do some spectroscopy to figure out how far away it is, and that would be one way to uh, pinpoint um, what the origin of the gravitational uh, waves might be. Um, another one, another big problem is the origin of ultra-high-energy cosmic rays. So these are cosmic rays which are more energetic than 10 to the 20 electron volts or thereabouts. Um, we don't know where they come from, but we can see their signature through Cherenkov air shower experiments. Um, again, the problem is the same thing. The Cherenkov air uh, shower experiments cannot constrain their locations to within um, basically tens of square degrees. Um, and so we want to, well, the, the, the problem with cosmic rays is, of course, the electromagnetic waves and the cosmic rays uh, don't necessarily um, arrive at the same time because the cosmic rays are traveling at a slightly sm slower than the speed of light, and so there could be several tens of years associated with when the supernova went off and when the cosmic ray came about. Cos cosmic ray was detected here. So that's a problem um, which we won't be able to get around, uh, but we can hope by, by again, doing a cross-correlate, by monitoring tens of square degrees, looking for transients which might have gone off in the recent past, we can try to pinpoint what the electromagnetic counterpart of, um, of one of the ultra-high-energy cosmic rays might be. And the third one is the one which is close to my heart, which is trying to see the signature of the first galaxies. Now, when we look up at the night sky, we see a bunch of stars. 6,000 stars can be seen with the naked eye. And then if you look between the stars, I mean, if you have a sharp eye, you can see Andromeda uh, from Pasadena. At least you can see it from my backyard. 
which is up in the foothills of Altadena. But I mean, Altadena, I mean, Andromeda is the is a nearby galaxy, and of course, if you're in the southern hemisphere, you can see the LMC and the SMC. But if you still stare at a relatively blank patch of sky with a bigger telescope, you see more and more galaxies. Eventually, uh, and as you're looking back in time, as you're looking further and further away, you're looking back in time until you get to the point where you're basically detecting the first galaxies. So the Hubble Space Telescope is pretty close, deep observations of the Hubble Space Telescope, pretty close to detecting these first galaxies. Now, what Hubble and JWST, the uh, $8 billion successor to Hubble, will do is try to identify individual first light galaxies. An easier way to do this is by looking at the integrated light of all the galaxies, of the indi individual first light galaxies. And the way we do that is basically the difference between looking with my glasses and looking without my glasses. If, you look, if I see with my glasses, things are sharp. If I look without my glasses, things are blurry. So if I look at blank sky, which is between the galaxies, I can hope to detect the signature of the first light galaxies. And by measuring the total intensity that is coming from, those, from that blank sky region, um, I can place constraints on when the first sources formed, how they evolved with cosmic time, so how the transition and how the transition from basically neutral gas to ionized gas happened within one billion years of the Big Bang. So this is arguably the most important astrophysical event since the Big Bang, reionization. And uh, by measuring this diffuse intensity, by, by looking at regions between stars, between galaxies, we can place constraints on what the reionization history of the universe is, uh, was like. Um, this, this has implications for all sorts of things, as you've heard. I mean, these first galaxies are basically composed of stars. The stars blow up within 10 million years, pollute the interstellar medium, produce metals, and these are the same metals which, after multiple generations of recycling, end up in the human body. Um, so by, by, through, through an experiment, um, we can hope to, through a relatively cheap experiment, we can detect this diffuse intensity and therefore constrain what the reionization history might be like. So these are three important science goals which I think can be addressed with a relatively small satellite, and I call this satellite 101010 because it's about 10 kilograms, 10 watts, and 10 centimeters, automatically, give or take a factor of two. I wish it, I could say it could be done for $10,000, but that's not true. It costs about $30 million uh, when we put in the proposal uh, without the launch. So now there's a trick to this. So $30 million is is without the launch, but the launch, we need to piggyback on one of his missions, which is we need to get outside this dust cloud which we're sitting in, which is the zodiacal dust cloud. Now, the zodiacal dust cloud in the inner solar system, which is basically within radii of two and a half Earth-Sun uh, distances and about one astronomical unit thick, is, is the dominant foreground in the infrared. So it's about two orders of magnitude higher than any other foreground. So we want to get out of it so we don't need a telescope which is four orders of magnitude larger in size. So as soon as we're going outside, so if, you, if you're inside the zodiacal light background, you basically need a, a 10 to the 5 centimeter radius telescope to measure the same intensity. And even then, you can't guarantee that you'll measure it because the zodiacal background changes as a function of time as the cloud goes around the, uh, as the cloud goes around the sun and we're going around the sun too. So we want to really get outside the zodiacal dust cloud. 
And uh, if you do that, we can do this with a 10 centimeter uh, size telescope. The total background, once we're outside the zodiacal light cloud, drops to below the signature from these first light galaxies. Again, within an order of magnitude. We don't really know what the zodiacal dust cloud is doing outside of 2AU or so, but if it agrees with models, um, we think that um, it should drop off pretty quickly. So you might say, okay, he wants to go outside the zodiacal dust cloud, so you can go either in the radial direction, in which case I'd piggyback on one of the Saturn and Jupiter missions, um, and it's 10 kilos. It's not very much, right? It's a tiny little instrument. Or you could go in the Z direction. Right? The problem with going in the Z direction, so perpendicular to the solar system, is that, um, well, there's no other mission going there. So, except maybe Ulysses probably went there, but I don't think it got much higher than half an AU, probably even less than that, probably two-tenths or three-tenths of an AU. This is when Laura was born, so it went way up. Yeah, but how much in the Z direction? You got it swing by to the Jupiter, so it was five AU. It was five AU, okay. So, so Ulysses would have been a perfect probe to put <laughs> one of these things, except we didn't... Too late. Yeah, too late, yeah. And, and, and the existing cameras on these, on, these, um, on, these, on these telescopes are not sensitive enough. That is, they either have pointing issues, which is the same issue that is bright stars get smeared out over multiple pixels, so there is no room between the stars to measure that first light from reionization. Or uh, they have too much scattered light. Things from like earth shine or uh, sunlight getting scattered into the focal plane are both a serious problem. So we actually have to do a high precision instrument. It has to be customized as we figured out after fiddling around with a bunch of other data. Um, and we need to put it either 1 AU outside the plane or we need to put it 5 AU out in the radial direction. Um, the advantage of course going in either of those directions is we're not causing, we're not trapping in our backyard. We're not contributing any more to the space junk that is there. Um, so we're just trapping in the outer solar system. Um, and, you know, like any other cheap satellite, um, I mean, we're poor, so, you know, poor college, good, poor college students need a ride, so of course we need a ride. Uh, so this experiment is called Zebra. It has been proposed. Um, it has the advantage that it has a cruise phase. You know, it takes two years to get out to Jupiter in the optimistic case. So in those two years, you can sit and monitor wide patches of sky and look for electromagnetic transients, which might be associated with you know, gravity wave events. Um, and at the same time, as we're going out further and further in radius, we can measure the structure of the zodiacal dust cloud, see if it originates from comets, see if it originates from asteroids, um, and eventually reach the cliff where the zodiacal dust cloud no longer contributes so we can see the first light um, sources. So the, 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 the wavelength at which this thing operates is in the infrared. So there's an advantage of doing this in the infrared, one of which is pure energetics. The first light sources are out at, you know, one billion years after the Big Bang. So due to the redshift effect, the intensity peaks in the near infrared. So the absolute background is at around one micron. So we have to operate in the near infrared. Now the advantage of operating in the near infrared for the transients is because there's a lot of dust in the local universe, at least in between redshift 0 and 0.5. And dust has this nasty thing of obscuring all the ultraviolet light. So by operating in the infrared, wavelengths tend to get through dust. The, at least the optical depth is relatively low in the infrared compared to the ultraviolet. So we can hope to get a more complete census of transients by operating yet at infrared wavelengths. So 
Again, it's a 10-10-10 solution with $30 million and a ride. Um, I think, um, at least I'm excited about the possibility of solving, killing three birds with one stone. Um, so I hope we shall get a chance to do that in, in the next, at least in this decade. Because like stream, my attention span is, you know, about a decade, not more than that. <laughs> okay, thanks, Ranga. <laughs> I have to say, personally, I'm a little skeptical about the utility for electromagnetic transients because most of the ones I know about are much fainter than a galaxy. So unless you have sub-arc second resolution and really deep, you're, you're praying for the brightest ultra-beamed ones that are probably rare. So I think you need a one-and-a-half-meter telescope to do a good job, but also 10 square degrees. How long What are the typical durations? Hour. Hour. I mean, the predicted in the optical. What if 10% of the zodiacal light comes from the Kuiper belt? Yeah, so that's that's a nice measurement. In fact, that's a prediction that we made. That so it's a combination of 10%. Yeah, combination of Kuiper belt and Oort cloud comets could be responsible for dust in the outer solar system, and that dust would be um, well. First of all, it'd be relatively cool. It'd be about you know 20 Kelvin or thereabouts. Um, but of course, it would have scattered sunlight, which, which, which would contribute in the optical near-infrared wavelengths. So the best way we could calibrate that out is by doing simultaneous spectroscopy and looking for the solar frown offer lines um, in these blank regions of sky. And so as it gets scattered off that, you would actually subtract out the contribution from the front with the, using the frown offer lines as a calibrator. Mm. Um, so, and we think that even if there is a 10% contribution from the zodi that, to the zodi from out, outer solar system dust, we can remove that using this spectroscopic calibration. So it's not pure energy. Because the thermal isn't so much an issue because the stuff is so cold. Yeah. Yeah. So. Okay, so uh, we've reserved 30, midi 30 minutes for dialogue between the panelists, the audience, each other, and we have our first question. This is a comment. <laughs> uh, there's another way to get out of the ecliptic, and that is to use a solar sail. And mm. I think that that would be a very uh, interesting way to it takes a while. Yeah, that doesn't take any longer than to get to uh, Saturn or Jupiter. Or anything. Of course, all depends on the weight of your spacecraft and the size of the sail. Right. Um, sure. I mean, so we've investigated ion thrusters. I didn't and, that. Yes, and you said <laughs> sails. I don't think yeah, that's have, So I didn't hear anybody talk about black holes or, you know, high-energy objects. Is that something that... Well, yeah, so, so that was indirectly in MIRAC. So I think yeah. basically the only thing you can do with small satellites that's interesting is monitoring the whole sky for the next soft X-ray transient, which is the next time one of these variable black hole accretions in the galaxy turns on or some very bright AGN event. Um, so it's really the all-sky X-ray monitoring. And there I think the issue is that they're not really very small satellites. This one is 200 kilograms. Is that you need a certain weight of detector if you want to work in the hard X-ray, and you need a bunch of lead collimators or lead-coated aperture, and so it gets to be heavy and not so small. But certainly, you know, it doesn't have to be like a flagship mission. It can be relatively cheap, but probably not a CubeSat for the X-ray monitoring. Yeah, I, I suppose one could take LinSat and 
extend that to the X-ray and make a bunch of a constellation of little X-ray telescopes as well. Yeah, well, well, one of the LIMSAT concepts that we discussed was the Lester lobster eye. Right. To, right. to do the whole sky and X-rays. Of course, right. that would be much individually much less sensitive, but it would do the whole sky all the time. Exactly. So. Yeah. The lobster eye, that's another question. Yeah. <clears throat> so aside from looking for uses for... Um, CubeSats, I mean, this is a more ge general workshop on small satellites, and uh, currently there is no scientific vehicle for a scientific proposal vehicle for small satellites. There was the Edison call recently, but um, this was for technology development. So um, it seems like there is a real need for a whole gamut of missions, not just small and then the, not just the CubeSats and then the Explorer line. And of course, the, use, the Unix um, got kind of killed by NASA itself. So should, should the field be pushing for a, um, uh, either um, re, um, in, it, reintroduction of the Unix or a uh, small size uh, uh, mission uh, line below the SMEX? I think that's actually a great... I mean, the, the great thing about having a line is that once people get used to it, it goes on That's right. forever. Yeah. Yes. And so yeah. I think if, if one could somehow get that going, it provides you know, student training, you have yeah. maybe some fixed buses, you have a, people are used to funding them. The tricky part is probably getting NASA to accept failure, that you probably, if you want to do this cheap, you probably have a significant number of failures, and you don't want them to cancel the line after the second one fails or something. So yeah, and that, and that well, mm -hmm. the... the Unix line was canceled, I think, in part because the actual ideas <coughs> going forward, there just weren't that many mm -hmm. that were compelling. And that there were also, the, the ideal of getting the cost low was not being realized because um, it's not as easy as, as mm -hmm. it sounds on paper. <laughs> um, but there's still, a, I think there's a, re as I was saying, there's really, a strong interest in a in a balanced program with a smaller, higher flight rate opportunity but of some sort. Do you think sort. now that the ideas that are floating around in this room are better than those that were proposed for the UNEX? Uh, <laughs> I mean, the question is, has something changed in the sense that we now have better capability and better ideas? I think, or is, I think you know, it's been 10, 10 or 15 years. Um, I think there's new technology, which makes, and I think there's new people with new ideas so and new science so yeah i think there's some potential but it didn't it didn't come forward in the uh, decadal survey as a as a idea people were pushing it hadn't um, the some ideas did come forward which were uh, More basically well we you know we proposed taking rock sounding rockets which are heavier they're not because it, it sometimes it costs money to make things small uh, so, um, and, and the idea was to, the, so the issue really for small, I think for small is, as I said, is it a cost issue and then is it the launch vehicle cost? I mean, it's ultimately access to space and frequency of access to space, which is the issue because there is this sort of watershed between if you're small enough, you can access space on, at a high enough frequency, then you can tolerate a large amount of risk. That means you can beat the cost down. But you get, you know, for large things, you get into this death spiral where, you know, the fewer 
the lower the fright, fright frequency is, so the, the, the more risk-averse NASA gets and the more cost you have to pour into making it highly reliable. So we need to be on the other side of that, that watershed where, where there is a lot of fright frequency, there's a lower profile, there's a rich program where there's always going to be something following the thing that failed. So, yeah, so where is that watershed? I mean, there's clear, we're talking about hundreds of hundreds of one, one a flight, year. But it, yeah, but at least is a it, few flights per year. Maybe one. I mean, it was going to be the shuttle program. And 100 kilograms is sort of yeah, it was going to be the shuttle program. Right. That was the original idea. And I actually put in an experiment. It was, it was a small experiment. The idea was, you know, you'd have all these opportunities. And that was the whole point of the shuttle program was flight, you know, frequent access to space. So I think we're but still looking for that. But currently in piggyback, what is the size and weight box that you can piggyback cheaply? Well, I think up to 100 frequently. kilograms. 180, 100 or, or maybe even 150. That's yeah. on, on the ESPA ring. Yeah. So most of the things we've been talking about oh, here yeah. would fall into piggyback. That's, you know, I'm just following up Chris's comment. The, the real problem with the small programs has been that, that they require an independent launch. Yeah. An independent launch is what dominates your cost ultimately. Yes. Forces it. So you, you don't want to get into that paradigm. You want to get into a paradigm where small payloads up to 100, 150 kilograms are routinely piggybacked on whatever's flying. Right. And in fact, maybe even more than one of them is routinely piggybacked. So that you have frequent access to space and you have a parameter space which goes from kilograms to 100 kilograms. And if you're going to do any of these things that are you know, um, beyond the, the, the real tiny, that's what, you, that's what you're really looking for. And I wouldn't do it through a Unix program where you're talking again about trying to go back to a, you know, a, a launch <laughs> profile. You'd have to invent a program which was you know, CubeSat on steroids. Right. But mission of opportunities are supposed to fill that niche in some way. I mean, they're, they're supposed to be less than $50 million. And but the mission of opportunities, first of all, only occur every two years. Yes, infrequent. Okay, and they're typically uh, pre-subscribed Right. NASA's uh, got strange and mysterious mm. ways of dealing with it. Yeah. So it, it's, it's, you know, on paper it may be one thing, but in fact it's not a solution. The solution really has to be a, a, a program where you can, can build payloads anywhere in this range that we're talking about and have them, you know, be um, uh, more or less routinely uh, capable of being piggyback launched with other, with other satellite programs, mm. whether they're NASA or, or non-NASA. That's that, but that's the problem. Is getting out of this only depending on NASA. Right. I, you I have can't a, fly on international <coughs> launchers if NASA pays for it. But if someone else pays for the satellite, we might be able to use the European launches. Yeah. Well, I'm are permitted. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Just follow up on this point. Whenever they need a Oh, did you have something connected to this? It's related. What if you go for it? Uh, NASA instituted the ALANA uh, program, and that dovetails very well the NSF opportunities. Uh, now, NASA has a mission of opportunity call out for periodically uh, entertaining such uh, mid-sized missions, but it doesn't uh, underwrite um, launch opportunities that have some kind of a streamlined approach to that. So it may not be too expensive to get NASA to, uh, too difficult to uh, nudge NASA into a position where it would uh, escalate the Alana class into a uh, ESPA-like um, uh, arrangement so that people have uh, somewhere to go to to propose for MOOs that, uh, that are of a mid-size rather than a CubeSat size. 
so it may not require too much. But you need you need to you need to. It's not just the launch. But, you know, only NSF is paying for. Uh, I should put it this way: in the government agencies, only NSF is paying for the development of the CubeSats. Okay. The uh, Alena program doesn't pay for development. Correct. So if you want to develop um, the MiniSats or whatever the right scale is. You got to find a way to get money for that, and yeah, you yeah. have to come out of suborbital, expand it, or explore as reduced. Yeah, what and that's more serious money. Yeah, what I'm suggesting is that the um, a scaled up Elana would be the equivalent of Elana for uh, mid-size uh, 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 spacecraft that would be proposed separately under MOO. You would get the money from MRO to develop the spacecraft and then propose to the uh, scaled up Alana for the opportunity. That's well, yep. so, so it took CubeSats at least 10 years to get to a spot where NASA would even think about launching. Okay. Uh, they first had to go to the Russians, and the Russians launched them. Um, so now we're talking about going deep space and doing some very amazing missions. And I see PIs that are up there. The cheapest, one of the best ways to get to space is to tag along with something else. Can that, that character, whatever it ends up looking like, maybe onto a Themis? Uh, can it be bolted onto somebody else? Is there a way as, as PIs to enable that secondary launch opportunity on the, on the, the flight position? Um, will you guys take that risk? Because then you can bootstrap yourself into getting over very difficult. It has been yeah. traditionally very difficult. And the arrangements with the launch vehicle, that's what carries the responsibility. So it's the launch vehicle's uh, job, really. Because well, they're responsible for taking, for taking it to space. We bypass the PIs by going to the launch vehicle yeah. and get stuck on the, you know, the back end of a Centaur stage that shakes us really bad. But no, no, you didn't the bypass PIs. the PIs. It's the launch vehicles. The PI has no control as to what happens if you deliver and you're encapsulated. Yeah. And, and what, if, what if the PI said, we'll take... 10 kilograms with us. Every PI in the US said, we're going to take 10 kilograms with us. <laughs> the launch vehicle. You'd be surprised how difficult that is. It's yeah, much easier. It's Everybody wants to put in you know, their favorite instrument for the additional 10 kilograms rather than give 10 right. kilograms to somebody else. Giving, away, giving it away is very hard if you're a PI. The contract is held by the launch by, by KSC. And then it goes to the launch vehicle, and the PI has no control over that. Um, but if you build in, say, three three U people standard, and you as a PI community agree, every mission you propose has three people on board. We will just propose every single mission with that full stop. So that way, if a Saturn mission comes in, then you can compete amongst yourselves for those three slots. The Jupiter mission comes in, and so on and so forth. Because that way, you're pulling together as yeah, I think I was just going to make a comment that NASA has in the past a couple explorer calls uh, included a student collaboration opportunity, which could, sometimes it's hardware on the actual instrument, on, on the actual satellite, but sometimes it can be a free-flying secondary payload, which would be completely student-built. Uh, I think you could imagine expanding that, but again, you have to, you have to start with it with the reason okay what is the reason well I I think the reason is you're training the next generation of innovators and builders it's not really to do it's not it's secondary science I think I mean the science is more niche science but getting the training and and the benefits of that and all the side you know the, the byproducts of that for the benefits for the nation I think could be sold as a program but it has to be multi-agency I, I, I fear 
which makes it more complicated. Yeah, did you have a question? Uh, I had a question related to uh, the machine because um, this is a less class program. And I was wondering if there are current plans to open this up and if that is a program for that or is that this discussed here? Uh, could you repeat that question? There are some collaborations from the U.S. that have been proposed, yes. We haven't investigated it in detail. Um, we only we tried to piggyback on one of the solar system missions, but we haven't looked into it. I think there's probably one issue is that the ITAR paperwork may cost more than $50 million or something. <laughs> <laughs> are there any uh, opportunities in the uh, NASA-supported uh, commercial uh, venture uh, Spaceflight programs for some of their smaller rockets, with perhaps a uh, high energy inertial upper stage, to be a, a potential launch vehicle. The NOVA program. Which, which program? Uh, the big uh, commercial launch vehicle. The, the Meaning Falcon. What's yeah. that? The Falcon. There's a family of uh, 13 now uh, firms that are being funded for developing commercial launch vehicles, and some of those have resulted in programs with smaller start vehicles and scaling up to larger ones. So mm -hmm. they have a, a range of, of vehicles available and, and some of those have already talked about uh, high energy inertial upper stages. We looked into the Falcon 9s uh, and they did, it was possible to do it on that, if they, if, but it's still a Falcon 9. So unless it's a technology demonstrator of the Falcon 9 with two additional SRBs, um, who's gonna pay for that? So that's too expensive. Yeah. So, other questions, ideas, advice? On one question I yeah. have, I'd love to know if it's a comment, is um, I'm not really very familiar with, the, with what NASA is trying to do related to um, uh, developing the heavy uh, launch capability. But I wonder if, um, if those rockets are being developed, if there is a mechanism of uh, test flights. Yeah, no, I mean, that was the idea that we would, if we got the right for free because it was a technology demonstrator, then we'd be happy to go along with it. I don't think there's a formal mechanism in place. Well, I, can, I can talk about that a little bit because I just looked into that for some other reasons. <laughs> and I can only tell you that uh, there's a tremendous amount of inertia within the heavy launch vehicle community to fly cement rather than anything that has science value. <laughs> and they're going to stick by there. Because guys. of the po politics. Yeah. <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs> it's just the way it is. Yeah. <laughs> but are, are these the same people that have actually uh, agreed to fly uh, uh, P-Boys on their launches? I beg your pardon? Are, aren't they the same people that have agreed to fly P-Boys on their launches? I, I don't know. I, I don't know if they are the same people or not. I can't answer that part. I can only tell you what the SLS people have told us. <laughs> I know within, at least within the Alana program, the process to actually get PPONs qualified and available as a process to use um, was not automatic. You know, it yeah. was, I think, at the end of that, it was incrementally and carefully done. Mm -hmm. 
but it was, didn't require you know, one person to sign up on the document to say you can go ahead and do this. It, it involved quite a number of uh, agencies within NASA. So sure. presumably some discussion might be had to, to look at flying something other than you know, some there's a price tag to all of this, and I assume that is the benefit to the launch provider. We just heard on on um, what is it on SpaceX? It's like 380k for a ride, and um, so there is a carrot there for the industry. Uh, so if NASA is willing to broker that uh, deal the same way NSF did for the pods, that would be a very a great boon for science. Yeah, NASA is doing that. Yeah. Very actively, even for other uh, capabilities that are in development from other um, uh, commercial entities. But until something is formally announced or an opportunity is formally made, uh, there's not a whole lot that's being said about what will be available in the near future. Just that there will be Stated objectives to develop a broad spectrum offering, not just heavy launch vehicles. Uh, they keep drawing the analogy to the, the start of uh, commercial aircraft and, and saying, yes, we funded bail routes, but with the understanding that uh, they could then carry cargo and then they said they could carry personnel and so forth. And they, they looked at it as a, as a spectrum from very small packages to large. So I think that there is a desire whether there's a mechanism in it and uh, a lack of inertia in the bureaucracy for it. I think there's a desire to foster that sort of capability. But I think, I mean, I think it's absolutely crucial to break the mold. I mean, there's really no reason why they should fly cement over spacecraft. So I think that should be one of the recommendations from this, that please give us any darn launch vehicle in which we can piggyback something as opposed to flying cement. I mean, if, if that's a formal recommendation, I think that's worth it. We can do I mean, scientists are basically innovative and they can come up with anything, if, given the capability. Well, I was also just doing the calculation. Any of you who've gotten NSF or NASA grants know that EPO, you have to put a certain percentage of your effort in, and usually it's more than 1%, but let's take 1%. So 1% of NASA budget is $160 million a year, which would do quite a deluxe program, I think, for the sort of things we want to do. So if we just call it EPO to convince NASA to put in 1%. You've got to remember they already have an EPO program probably cost a lot more than $160 million. I know, but this would be real workforce development, not what they pretend is workforce development. Well, Sergio, did you have your... I wanted to ask a question about communications. I mean, I'm... I don't have it very clearly formed in my mind, but I'll, I'll kind of go around uh, the, the topics that I've been thinking about. You know, Phil Nicholson talked about uh, putting a series of, he didn't say how many, but you know, some uh, small satellites uh, in, a, uh, in a very uh, aggressive environment. So there's a possibility that they might not survive. But then I think that one thing that you talked about was the, the need to put the kind of communications mothership out of the ring. So now that kind of, so we have kind of a low cost or a small spacecraft approach, but then we had a very expensive thing sitting mm. up there. So now, okay, now I'm using this now as a, uh, as a way of kind of trying to frame a, a broader question about 
maybe these uh, uh, planetary science type studies where communications is an issue getting the data back. So um, is there a kind of a generic problem which is that of uh, forming arrays, active arrays out of these uh, small spacecraft so that we can do long-range communications. Is that the only approach? Is that some other approach? I'm just trying to identify a kind of a, an interesting problem that might exist in this area that um, uh, could perhaps make it possible to actually do the complete mission rather than just the one piece of it. Mm -hmm. So I think it would be... I mean, I don't know if I'm asking a, a question that at this point can be answered, but to me that was an interesting issue that came up from comments I heard today. And I'm also relating that to the comments we heard earlier on about the amount of power that is available on each platform. Because obviously, uh, regardless of the geometry of the array, there is the amount of power that needs to be provided to each radiator. So, so isn't the, the, um, the, the technology of optical communication the answer to this ultimately? Where you can get high bandwidth and low power? Yeah. Necessarily much yeah. better than that. So, it, it, I, mean, I think that, that in the long run, that's probably a, a more likely avenue because there's an awful lot of other reasons why that is being looked at. Yeah. And I think it's also a question of boring stuff like standardization and compatibility. If you make sure that every mission can talk to every other mission, then you have the opportunity to relay. The other thing is, of course, how much data do you actually need to transfer? You need to get one bit back. Saturn rather than yes. <laughs> as long as you send it to Saturn I think um, yes obviously there has to be a little bit of thought gone into the you know frequencies and compatibilities but a good example are the rovers on Mars at the moment and I'm not sure if most people are aware that very little I'm not sure any but very, certainly very little of the data that comes back from the rovers gets transmitted directly to the earth from the rovers they don't have decent antennas on them 
almost all that data routinely goes through the uh, one of the orbiters uh, that's in orbit around Mars, and that's that must have been planned to some degree, although at what point that was added on to the, the demand for the what, the what the orbiters needed to do, I'm not sure. But now essentially all of that data gets relayed from the rovers to the orbiter and then from the orbiter back to the Earth. So that, that, that's partly because NASA had such an aggressive Mars program that they could say with fairly certainty there would be at least one orbiter still operational during the lifetime of the rovers on the surface. So... Yeah, so I, that's what I was thinking of the same thing, that, that maybe the opportunity to do something like this Saturn mission would be when there was another larger mission in orbit around Saturn that could act as a natural relay, because I don't think the data volumes would themselves be huge. So that might be the practical answer, is that you only do these out-of-planet micro-satellite, small-satellite missions when you have something larger that can act as a relay to provide the communications, maybe. Yeah, um it seems like everyone is thinking about small sats as, as a, a piggyback or it, as a, in, instead of or in place of an Explorer-class mission, let's say. And I'm wondering, has, has anyone thought about making an Explorer-class mission out of small sats? Like, I mean, if you had 100 satellites and they each cost a million dollars, could you do interesting science with that? I think that was Vasilis's Sure, yeah. Yes. Well, this is, as I was saying earlier, this yeah. is the next best thing for the field of heliophysics. It's the cutting-edge science with technology that is, you know, uh, at our doorstep at the moment for heliophysics. So um, one of the questions that, that, that came up to me when you we were talking is whether or not your cost reduction model is, is, is valid or not. And, and a lot of that depends on what the other costs are that you haven't included. If you have to do test and calibration of each and every one of your payloads, you save no money, whether it's the first one or the tenth one. Right. It takes labor and effort to do that. Sure you yeah. do, because you do them ten at a time after the first. You, if you have to calibrate every one of them, you still have to calibrate them. It takes time. But if you have to <laughs> test them every one of them through a thermal vac or something, it takes time. And that time still costs money. Well, you again, don't reduce your cost quite as much as you're saying, I think, yeah. unless you give up on some of the quality control or test and integration activities. Yeah, the experience well, from Themis shows that you do you take advantage of that from the design phase. From phase B, you just design the whole process out where calibration and testing will happen en masse, not one at a time. So they went into the chamber um, uh, two at a time, and they went on the shaker five at a time. Because um, uh, it was because the first one had gone through and all the issues were wrung out this way, and they were all instrumented properly to build sp special shields so they can be radiated, uh, you know, exactly in the same way. But all the GSC were designed for that, uh, you know, ease of uh, flow of the INT. Okay. Well, I, I think, think it depends on, on exactly what you've got. Well, I think it's scale also. I mean, five. Is one size, but a hundred. If you had a hundred, literally, then you had 100, I mean, I could, ten I could I, fail. I so. can't calibrate, you know, uh, uh, a UV telescope on mass. You know, ten of them at one time in yeah. any facility that yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But right. you can make it run faster by building special GSC. So when you when it goes into the the chamber, you have a special device that can do it automatically and then requires attendance if there is a problem. Things like that. I mean, you can take it, but of course, you won't be, uh, you know, uh, twice the cost to do 100, 
but it, you can certainly bring down. I know you can drive it down, but I don't know if you can drive it down quite as optimistically as you were saying. Yes. Do you guys have do you have numbers on that? So I mean, it's our sure, yeah. that all the time goes into setup. Mm -hmm. Once you set up the test, then you just slam them through. I mean, does that just have hard numbers? Yeah, we do have numbers. I mean, the test time itself is generally very small. It's getting the test facility up and running correctly. It takes a lot of time. I can tell you, test went through go, you know, going through JPL. It was 700k. The whole thing. Uh, so it was just the um, basically the environmental test lab costs, and then the rest was the team that came down. But it was less than a dozen people going through for a couple of months, so it isn't that expensive. I think the other issue is that, you know the reliability of and how much you care about whether it works is very different if you have one every ten years than if you have a hundred a year. So. <laughs> There must be some saving attached. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, several speakers have expressed a desire to change the way NASA allocates its funding between large flagship missions and smaller scale missions. I was wondering if anyone could speak to how that kind of change would take place and what, what we could do about it to change that. Painfully. <laughs> well, I, yeah, actually, I have a comment. Well, I, I think there was an attempt. I mean, I actually have thought about this a lot. Uh, <laughs> um, there, there, there are a couple problems. Uh, one of them is that, for example, we have a decadal process, okay, and that, in essence, represents our ten-year, once every decade opportunity to change the way NASA change NASA's priorities. If, if the decadal process said we should, you know, spend fifty percent of our money on small, medium missions. That ha happened. In fact, this decadal survey did say spend more on explorers. Okay, and NASA's listening to that and doing um, its very best under the constraints to do that. Um, it didn't say smaller than explorers. So I think we've already made progress in that respect. But there was also uh, a lot of interest in this of something between. Now this is not small satellites, but something between the explorers and flagships probes, which are about a billion dollars. And the problem with those were that that everyone thought their probe cost less than a billion, and they were costed all at more than a billion, much more than a billion, and therefore they were all considered non-compliant with that category. So, so that idea died because of costing issues. And I think for larger missions, it's a real it's a real issue developing uh, cost models that the community can understand and and agree upon and and go forward, you know, with a, with a common understanding. We sort of, we all understand basic engineering and basic physics, but we don't understand costing. So it's a, but it's a, it's a crucial element of the, of the, of formulating a mission. So I'm hoping that that changes in the next few years. Could, could, could you elaborate just uh, one little bit more on this? Uh, how is NASA changing thanks to the decadal survey um, recommendations? Well, the, they've points. increased the budget for the Explorer program. So, um, it but, yeah, didn't they just cancel one Explorer? Because yeah, but that didn't. That's did that's double coming. It, double its cost gap. Yeah, that that that's actually. We can have a discussion of why they did that, but I mean, one of the reasons why is that things go over the cost cap, then you have fewer flight opportunities. So they're actually trying to enforce some discipline, cost discipline. And I, I do think that's one element to managing cost, is enforcing cost discipline. And I, 
I speak from experience. I mean, uh, fortunately, I wasn't canceled. But <laughs> um, you know, it was you know we we did exceed our cost, um, but we knew that you know it was we were on the borderline, and we, you, you, it enforces great efficiency and discipline to have that. But but uh, but I think NASA that money is going to go back into the Explorer program. I hope. <laughs> That's the plan, and they will launch the next Explorer sooner. So, There's probably also a little bit of the community in the selection of these. The tendency is to choose the most biggest, most elegant Christmas tree out of the 100 choices for the Explorer, and that tends to be the one that goes over its cost cap. Or is well, that's, I, I have to say that's been less and less true. I think actually NASA has been getting, or the selection process has been getting more and more conservative. And in fact, I think too conservative. My personal opinion is um, because because of this problem with cost, uh, and I think that we're not solving it in a, that problem in a smart way. It's a problem we have to solve, but we have to be smart about it. So I think you know maybe you need a longer period where you prove the technology. Uh, you need enough money to invest in the technology. That was that was yet another recommendation. Yeah. So it's much more investment in technology, technology development that has not yet reached fruition, but yeah. there's some efforts going on in that direction. But just another comment is yeah. that the Decato, at least, was not charged to go below the Explorer program in, in terms of what it was expected. Well, they did. They went a little bit. They did the go. Other, but, but to go down to the, the level that we're talking about yeah. of support for a very, very small pilot was not actually part of the Well, they they did respond to some inputs. In fact, there were words in there about something we put in, which was called the orbital sounding rocket right. program, which is not small satellites. Decades. Yeah, you're right. Okay. <laughs> that technology. It's always in the words. It's never in the chart. Right? It's never in the chart. No, no, no. Right. That's right. So, and that's been the, the, one of the problems of the decadal is it doesn't go at, at, in, in deep that deep in terms of addressing these kinds of issues. Yeah, I, yeah, I think it's it was it was the best so far in terms of trying to balance the program. I would say on the similar grounds, although it's not quite the scale you were asking about in the planetary decadal survey, the final recommendations for that a lot of the attention was paid to the biggest flagship missions that were approved, namely a Mars sample return and a Jupiter Europa mission. But both of those were already recognized to be rubbing up against and probably the estimated costs were above what people had been saying they would be. In both of those, there was very strong uh, text in that report that these missions should only be done if there was some way of bringing them back, in one case, you know, substantially down, like a factor of two in cost from $4.5 back to two or so. And that if there wasn't, if we couldn't find a way to bring these flagship missions back down to that size, they should be dropped in favor of continuing to pursue more of the medium and the smaller size planetary missions. So the equivalent of the Explorer is the Discovery, you know, the PI-led missions. So it's certainly not down to the level of the small things we're talking about here, but it, there was strong recognition there that NASA shouldn't just go along and do whatever it can do to get the one or two giant flagship missions done. That it, was, it was really important to keep the medium-sized ones. So 
it sounds like both surveys were sort of yeah. going in that right direction to try to restrain NASA from you know, doing another JWST or similar things on where well, yeah, the entire budget we, gets put spent on one or two missions. Our survey had no money. That was one of the problems. Yeah. <laughs> Had to do that. And, so, and what money it had was spent by JWST. That's right. So, <laughs> a year so after another, and as a community, I think one way we can address your question is if there is no formal call for things which are in the 10 to $30 million or less, would it be a bad idea that a group of people who have different science goals, different group of PIs, each with their own mission, which has 15 to $20 million, put in six different proposals and say, well, these six missions can be piggybacked under the SMEX cost cap, and each one costs only $20 million. Do you think NASA would be acceptable to that model? They're all separate proposals. So they'd be competing with, say, somebody else who put in a single $130 million proposal, which fits under the SMEX cost cap. But there's nothing to stop us from coming in below the cost limit and putting in six $20 million proposals, which meet the criteria. Worth a try. Yeah. So the, the answer to your question is that the selection, if the review committees rate those six higher than the $130 million mission, NASA would do it. But if the $130 million mission got ranked higher by the review committee, then NASA would do that. 